This is the Post Shift Podcast, your raw look at the hospitality industry. What has happened to Post Shifters and welcome to another episode of the Post Shift Podcast. Of course, I'm your host, Sean Sewell. Um, I hope that everybody's enjoying their week. Thank you very much for your support. I'm completely and utterly grateful for all the episode listens and comments and everything that I've been getting over social media. Um, my Obviously, my special editions, my Monday to Friday episodes have been going off without a hitch, which has been fantastic. I've been doing tons of live streaming and, and phone call interviews and all this sort of stuff. So, hope you're getting some value out of this. I hope you're enjoying everything. This one's from uh, Sven Alaming. I did a live stream with him a little while ago. And so, he really gets into where he came from, Norwegian military, which I didn't know. And we've been friends for 15 years. Um, we talk about... Uh, Order V, making the jump from consultancy to opening a bar to Mjolnir, which I can never pronounce. It's his his Norwegian um, Viking-themed restaurant and bar, which is just crazy when you listen to when he talks about the concept as mental. But I really hope you get some value from this uh, episode, guys, and I hope that you're enjoying everything. Have a good week. I'll see you soon. Bye. Off early. I thought we had some fucking chit-chat to go before you got into it. Dude, if you listen to my podcast, it's exactly what my podcast is about. It's just catching up with mates and chatting about shooting the shit. I like it. I like it. Do you mind if I have a cigar? Of course. Fuck, I wish I could in my house. Well, this is uh, this is not my house. This is my office out in the garden, bro. <laughs> so, I'm not allowed in the house. <laughs> with cigars. I'm allowed in the house. Yeah. <laughs> with cigars. This conversation took a horrible turn for the worst. <laughs> um, so, uh, so my my podcast has been going for about fifteen months now, and uh, I've done I think I'm up to one hundred and fifty four episodes um, since the pandemic came out. Um, I've been doing one a day, Monday to Friday, and so really, what I wanted to do Monday to Friday is connect with people who are either doing initiatives or um, industry-related stuff to get real information to uh, the industry people because there's so much information out there, so much information out there that you're like, okay, well, what's real, what's not, how many sec- how much is secondhand? So for you, I really want – eventually I want to start talking about Ananias and uh, what you've done with Ananias during COVID. But really, let's take it all the way back to the, the very, very beginning and like introduce yourself to everybody because – been um, most of my listeners are in Canada, um, not in Australia. And was it ten o'clock there right now? Nine o'clock. Ten a.m. Yeah, man. Ten a.m. Almost. Almost. Yeah. So introduce yourself to my uh, introduce everybody watching and fill fill them in on who you are. <laughs> All right. Um, so my name is Sven um, Elmenning. I, I uh, um, live in Australia. I'm from Norway originally. I uh, own a small bar group here in Australia with a uh, with some good friends. Um, uh, called the Speakeasy Group, um, uh, which includes ODV, which is probably the more well-known of the venues overseas, as well as Boilermaker House, Nicanor's, and uh, two Viking-inspired restaurants called Mjölner, named after Thor's Hammer. Um, prior to that, I, uh, uh, I ran a consultancy agency here, I suppose, called uh, Behind Bars. Um, not the same as the one in the UK, a different outfit. Um, and we... Uh, you know, had a hand in you know, creating the world-class competition. Um, you know, we created something called the Kettle One Fraternity. Did a lot of brand consultancy around Australia for about 10 years. Uh, and prior to that, I um, worked at bars and, um, and used to do a lot of writing for, for various magazines, Bartender Magazine, etc. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's a, a quick summary of me, man. What um, did you start bartending? How old were you? Oh, bro. 
I um, had my first hand of bartending when I worked on a Navy ship as a, as a second lieutenant. Um, and uh, I'm, I was the youngest officer on board, or petty officer, I suppose, in English, petty, I think it's called petty officer. Um, so I was the youngest, bar, the youngest officer that had to make the fucking drinks in the officer's mess. Um, and, um, and, and bartended and DJed somehow at the Crown Prince's birthday party one year, which was fun. Um, but I didn't really start bartending until I, I traveled to the States and did a course in L.A., um when in 90 fucking six um so it was a while ago i did a course in la and i've pretty much been bartending since or was been in the bar industry since so what is it uh mandatory to be in the military in norway right it is or it is um i joined the academy though for different reasons so you have to join uh the military but um, I wanted to get more out of it. So by, by going into officers training and getting into the officers academy, which is, which is probably one of the bigger achievements I've, I've, I've done in my life, um, meant that we got an immense, immense amount of training. We got a lot more out of that, that year than you would if you just went in as a private, I think. Um, but I had to stay in for additional time to, to work. So I stayed in the Navy for just shy of two and a half years in total. Oh, wow. Wow. And when did you make the move to Australia? I moved to Australia. I came through here as a backpacker in 96. Um, after I studied bartending in the, in the States, I did some bartending there, came over here. I uh, worked a few bars around the country, mostly in exchange for free accommodation. Um, and then, uh, as you do, um, and then when I um, uh, went back to Norway, um, you know, I decided I wanted to, to move back overseas and, and, and Australia. I'd lived in the States for a year when I was uh, as an exchange student. Um, and, uh, but Australia really was the, where I wanted to end up. So I came back here to study in 99 and did a journalism degree here. Um, wow. yeah. Was, and, was bartending um, always a side hustle for you? If like you come back to do journalism, obviously, right. And I've read a lot of your, a lot of your content, a lot of your work. It's amazing. So was bartending always a side hustle? It was in the beginning. Yeah. To be honest, um, it, it became the main, the main, more of a main focus when, um, I was told I needed a, a skilled residence visa to stay in the country. Um, and the only thing I was skilled at doing apparently was, was managing bars. Um, and so I was kind of mandated. I had to do that if I wanted to stay here. Um, but I think the thing with the industry is that at least for me, it, it's so engaging and, and so fun and so full of energetic people from all different walks of life that I just, I just really got pulled in. Um, and I also really loved uh, the stories. So, you know, I love how you can, you know, you, a, a bottle of whiskey that you, that you pick up, maybe somebody may have started making it before you were born. Not that so much the case for me anymore. Cause I'm getting so far. <laughs> you know, like that whiskey would be expensive. Um, <laughs> and really when I was old. <laughs> now it's more like, Oh, they made this when I was a teenager. Um, and, um, uh, shit, I should probably find a way of turning it off. And, um, uh, so I stayed in, stayed in, uh, I really got pulled in by that. And I also love, you know, the old story, the recipe books and the stories. And um, so it hasn't been a side hustle for me for a long time. I, I, I really do um, enjoy this industry. So when did, when, when was the point that you were like, you know what, journalism is great as a side hustle now. This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life and really knuckle down. Because I think a lot of us get in the industry as a side hustle, as a, sort of a, a stop gap to what we really want to do. And then nine times out of 10, all this, like it's a very repetitive story with this industry. People say, well, I was really an engineer and then I fell in love with bartending. Now I'm a bartender for the last 30 years. 
um, when was the time that it sort of clicked for you? Because I think a lot of younger bartenders sort of, they sort of see it as like a, a go between some go super serious straight away, but as a go between, but when did it click for you to go, okay, well, you know what, this is going to be good. I should stay with this. That's a hard road to pin down. I think, I mean, the first thing was when, they, when I was told I had to do bartending to stay here or, or manage bars to stay in the country. Uh, obviously that was a big push towards it. Um, but I did have a lot of, I did do a lot of writing gigs. Um, you know, I wrote for, I had a column with GQ magazine. I had a column with the Sydney Morning Herald here in Good Food. Um, I wrote for a bunch of, you know, men's magazines overseas about booze and whiskey. And, but it was all booze related pretty much. Like quite early on, I found my niche. Um, and I just decided that, you know, rather than trying to do a bunch of stuff I was not good at, I, I, I try to focus on one thing I, I seem to have a knack for, which was booze. Um, and i um, just, you know, really interested in that. And so I think, I think it was a gradual thing for me. Um, the real move towards um, focusing on this was setting up an importation, a, a, a booze import business called Alchemy Imports back here in Australia in about 2003, I think it was. And that idea that I could, you know, be my own boss um, and, and do something I was, I was good at really, really appealed to me. Um, so I think the decision to stick with it probably was more uh, beyond just bartending. It was more of an industry decision rather than like, a, you know, I want, I want to bartend. Um, and um, that business didn't go so well, but, <laughs> but it rolled into other ones that, that, did, that did better. Um, but I think it was like a gradual thing for, for me. So you you went to behind bars, which was like your big training education, which which has been always always been a big core for you. Like I've seen some of your manuals and some of your mantras for O to V and 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 that sort of thing. And like education and training has always been like a massive mantra for you. Mm. And behind bars, like how long was behind bars? Well, how long was behind bars around for? I think it was around for um, a bit blurry, man. Uh, I think it was around for like. 11 years 10 11 years and really um, like when we go back to that era like there wasn't much in the way of what you were doing like nowadays ananias and all these online platforms we're talking pre-internet days where like you couldn't just go online like i try and always remind bartenders of pre-internet days when you yeah. go to a bookstore and like collect books purely but not because of their pretty pictures or stuff out of pure necessity you had to collect books you want to learn anything about classics it's coming out of a book. Oh, you got to have the books. Oh, yeah, man. I've got, you know, Jesus, I've, I've, got, a, I've got a few hundred cocktail books in at least. Um, and um, you know, so we, you know, I you know, got the old original Jerry Thomas books and shit like that, like kicking about. Because um, you had to get them, you know, if you wanted to, if you wanted to learn back then. Um, I mean, Behind Bars, was, behind bars was, was, was an interesting thing. It, it, it didn't start as a training business. It basically kicked off as a, um, I was doing some consultancy work like a lot of people would do, you know, create drinks and, and, and uh, you know, uh, communications out to the industry. And I came across this bourbon brand who had this really ridiculous on-premise activation idea where, uh, in short, they're going to put up these barber poles in, in, in venues and, and um, little barber stations. And, and guys who came up to have their beard shaved would get a, a free bourbon and coke at the bar. And they want to activate us on Friday nights in these venues. And they had all these numbers on how many they should reach. And I remember sitting in a meeting going, all right, so, you know, but how are you compensating for, look, last look, you know, um, the lack of turnover, loss of turnover for these venues? 
And a bunch of other questions. Of course, this area would take up familiar space, which meant they could not accommodate as many people in the venue. Um, I had questions around, you know, public liability. What happened if you, you know, the guy's having a shave, Billy walks in, he's like, hey, he turns around, all of a sudden he gets a fucking nick in the neck. <laughs> you know, there's all these questions around, you know, is this safe? And these guys hadn't thought of that. And it came to my kind of idea that, you know what, there's a market here for someone who understands how the on-premise works, who can talk to brands and make sure that when they're activating in the on-premise, it works in the on-premise. Like, you know, these people were campaigns for TV and bottle shops, not so much for activating in bars. And that's kind of how Behind Bars came about as a, as a business. And then eventually it merged into training simply because I'm, you know, I've always been really passionate about, about training. Coming out of the Navy and the military, training is like the number one thing that they focus on there, um, or, or learning how to educate. Talking about education, like, again, I think it goes back to that era. Like, I remember I left Australia in 2006, and even 2006, like, there was, like, yourself and a few other people in Sydney and Melbourne were, like, leaning to the, the training thing, but a lot of venues still weren't keen on training. Like, there was sort of mediocre average training from all the brands and, like, brand like brand staff training and stuff like that. But really, in the grand scheme of things, there was no one coming and going, so you're going to pay me to train your staff to be better. Um, what sort of, what sort of, because I still think in a lot of cities, there's still that sort of barrier of entry that a lot of owners and a lot of operators give themselves when it comes to outside consultants. How did you get over that? How did you like jump over that barrier? Oh, I mean, the, being super charming. Yeah. Well, <laughs> to be honest, we, 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 we did a few trainings directly for venues, um, where well, we could demonstrate that there would be uplifting volume and, and, and stuff. And, and um, my first bar job that I ever got, I went into the bar and basically, you know, big myself up and told me I was better than I was. But that's what you do when you're fucking 20. And I basically said, you know, if, if, I, do a, if I do a free shift for you uh, on Friday night and you reckon you'll do just as well without me, then don't hire me, you know. But, but if, you think you really, if you really think you can be just as good without me as you are with me, then there's a drama. But if you, if you think I did added something to that team, then, then put me on a shift on Saturday. And that would always get me a job. Um, and it kind of similar work for the consultancy piece. I would, I would go in and do free work um, a lot of the time uh, just to prove that I could deliver results. And then that would result in a contract. Um, but a lot of venues weren't willing to pay or, or didn't believe they had to pay because they'd operated for 10, 20, 30 years. Sometimes they had several generations of, of publicans and who hadn't done any training. It's just jump behind the bar, pour the beer, fucking whatever. Um, and so the goal really became to convince the liquor companies that we could add value to their customers and drive turnover of their products by training them. So we trained 15,000 bartenders a year back then, but Diageo was paying for it. Um, because when we trained the staff, that venue increased their turnover, which then increased sales of volume on behalf of Diageo. So that's how we you know, grew that, the training component of the business back then. That still doesn't happen in Canada. I still don't see that existing in Canada still yet. Still the very thing that's missing. It's hard because you need the data. So, you know, I was very conscientious of the fact that, you know, um, my time, I might value my time, uh, you, you know, X amount per, per hour or whatever, but the brands aren't paying for my time. The brands are paying for a result. Mm -hmm. And so, like, it's like if somebody comes to paint your wall and you go, you know, I'm willing to pay a thousand bucks to paint the wall uh, or whatever, and they, and they agree to the quote. Now, whether or not they spend, you know, 500 hours or two hours, you know, as long as the, 
outcome is the same, you agree in the price, right? Um, but quite often what happens is that they'll charge you by the hour, not for the outcome, and all of a sudden that will cost 1500 bucks because they underestimate, underestimate how long it would take. Now that, that creates a, a discord between the, the, the customer and the, um, and as opposed to the provider. Um, and that's a big thing when it, when it comes to consultancy is that I found, you know, you got to demonstrate value first and then you can agree on a price after, but quite often the price comes up first and there's no tangible link to the result. So that's how we built it. We built it gradually by, by demonstrating, you know, increased volume in venues. We would have small, um, a trial example, like, you know, a, a small sample field, if you like, of venues demonstrate progress there and then that would grow out um to to a lot of it but it was fucking hard work to get off the ground um luckily at the time diage was really uh you know saw saw the benefit in it and believed also in it as a competitive advantage over their other other um suppliers because at the time there were no other training programs in australia it was the only one no other there was no brand ambassadors there was no nobody was doing training like this um and so it became a real competitive advantage for them when negotiating contracts as well. So with, uh, with that going forward, like you, I asked Jesse Vita this the other day about like working at Blacktail and, and Dead Rabbit and then going to work at Atlas. <clears throat> with that in mind, like what year did you, Order V was your first bar, right? In Sydney? Yeah. What year was that? 2010, 10 years ago. Wow. That feels much longer ago. Um <laughs> 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 but Ashanti was like, how did you go from what, and why did you go from there? Like you obviously at the top of your game behind bars was doing well. Yeah. You, you could have just rest on your laurel and just like gone like, and really it's, it's that big crossover to open your own bar. Like a lot of people, especially now um, it's, it's a big gap. And why would, why did you take the jump from owning a super conce- like successful consulting training business to going in all on your own? A lot of reasons for that. Um, some of them had to do with, you know, um, you know, just personal motivation and, and, and getting something out of life. So, you know, by the time we opened, ODV would be had behind bars for seven years. I've been, you know, the first, you know, five, six years were, were pretty fucking good. Um, learned a lot, really enjoyed it. And then it became difficult. You know, the amount of things I had to execute that was terrible. And I told the client it was not going to work, but I had to do it anyway because they're the client. Um, I just got tired of, of um, to something you're not being listened to and, and, and stuff. Um, and, and wanted to do something, something new to motivate myself. I like to, I like to pivot out a bit. Um, and then, so that was one reason. Another reason was I got really tired of being told that people didn't want to drink a gin and tonic or Negroni after work. They wanted beer and wine. And they wanted two of those, ideally three of those. And then they were going to switch to booze once they decided to get fucked up. And so all the briefs I was getting were like, how do we get people from switching to a bourbon after two drinks instead of waiting for three? And I was like, well, fucking let's get them on one straight away. <laughs> um, and I was told it couldn't be done. So we opened a bar where, I mean, immediately, you know, we opened up with turnover was about 70 odd percent with cocktails. Um, you know, beer sales never, ever got over 2% in that venue in 10 years. It's still below 1.5% per week. Uh, wine sales, you know, we have weeks where wines don't even touch the 1% mark. Um, we sell spirits. And we always did. And I wanted to kind of prove that you could do that if you put in place the right environment for it uh, and you trained your team on it. Because it's harder to sell spirits than it is to sell beer and wine. Um, 
I, I believe, uh, especially 10 years ago when people weren't really ordering spirits and cocktails. Uh, so part of it was to kind of prove that it could be done. And another one as well is um, there's this saying, right, when it comes to teaching, right, that um, those who can do <laughs> and those who can't teach. Um, and so I also felt like we had something to prove because we did work with a lot of bars to consult to a lot of bars. And I didn't want to be someone who went into venues and said that, you know, this is how you can do stuff. And, you know, by not being able to prove that I'd done it. Um, and so ODV to some degree also was there as a, as a, you know, as a kind of putting our, putting ourselves out there to demonstrate that, you know, what we said could, could work. And we wanted to demonstrate an environment that, um, you know, and, and actually kind of test our, 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 our thesis, if you like. So there's a lot of reasons behind opening the bar. And I think anyone working in this industry, um, not everybody, but a lot of us, you know, have this idea of our dream bar. Um, and I certainly had had worked on, you know, what would, you know, my ultimate bar look like. And, you know, we were always looking around for spaces here and there, but it's only when we came across this one specific space that I realized that this is what we could, where we could do it. Um, we actually discovered it while we were looking for a, a place to have the final for the world class, Australian world class competition. I think it was the first year. And I found this bar it's closed down. So we had a, it was no longer operating. Um, and um, the tenant had been locked out ages ago, like six months earlier. And so we came in, cleaned it up. It meant we had a, you know, we could be there all day. We didn't have to get out for the venue when they open in the evening. We had a fully controlled environment. We could be in there for several days. Um, and they had this, it was a bar and restaurant. And they had this bar tucked at the back. And I was like, fuck, that's a great little bar. And so we managed to, um, get a deal with a landlord where he separated the, the venue out into two leases, leased a separate out to a restaurant to someone else, and we took the bar at the back. Wow. Yeah, I, cool, I think I still think, like saying 10 years ago isn't that long ago. Like I took over Clive's uh, in Victoria 11 years ago ish now, 11 years ago now. And I sort of look at it as like in the grand scheme of like our age group, cocktail culture hasn't been around for that long. No. That's right. Macro. Like there's been little, the little pockets, London, New York, San Francisco, LA, that sort of thing. But even in Australia, like Cocktail Culture in Australia started in 2005, 2004, five, six sort of area. Um, oh, even like, then, even then, even then, like I'd say even after, to, after it would be open, you know, you could go be 2012 and a good cocktail bar was still at 50% of sales here. hundred percent. And then being in Singapore last year, opened my eyes to, it took me back to Australia 20 years ago. Like when I started in the industry, like Singapore like gets written about and like everybody loves it, but it is very much like Australia was 20 years ago where cocktail bars are open, but people are still just drinking beer and people are still nailing through wine and yep. uh, consumer knowledge is still very low and everybody raves about the city. And I love Singapore like to the nth degree, but the cocktail culture is eight years old. <laughs> like it started in 2012 and everybody's like trying to be like London and New York. I'm like, you guys got a few steps. You missed a few steps. Like you don't make an old fashioned properly yet. Like maybe you should do that before you go fat washing or centrifuging something. It, t- it takes a while for consumers to catch up. I think that's the thing with bars, you know, bars in many ways lead the way. I mean, you look at, I saw this, uh, well, I haven't seen the video, but I heard about this uh, dude, the actor making the Negroni on t- uh, online the other day. And, but you know, you go back, you go back um, uh, 15 years uh, one of the things I used to do for Diageo was I used to run this training course on, you know, how to not be a dickhead in the on-premise. And 
and basically just training their staff when they started. Yeah, I didn't, we didn't call it that. I had a better name. Um, but the purpose <laughs> of them had a slightly more you know, corporate approved name. But the point of the course was to teach uh, sales reps how to behave in the on-premise and how to gain respect from bartenders and how to um, not be a dick there. Like, you know, people used to come back in into venues and have a massive night and they come to the bar and go, oh, fuck, you know, can I just drop off a, a case of vodka on Monday to sort this out? Um, and you're like, I can't pay my staff in vodka, do you get? So, you know, but one of the things we used to do was teach them how to make Negronis and how to drink Negronis. Um, and we even had like this, like, okay, well, fucking, if you can't drink a Negroni, you know, with Campari, try with Aperol and then work your way in. And the purpose of it was so that these guys went into venues, they would be drinking drinks that were credible. So bartenders would go, wow, you know, this guy drinks Negroni, maybe, you know, there's something more to this dude than I thought. Um, and they would be not ordering fucking Toblerones, just fucking imperativos, you know, and <laughs> down their palate. And oh, 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 the fucking Toblerones. It's just oh, the shit God. we're doing. Um, <laughs> You know, and so today to see that, you know, that cocktail, which I think was featured in that, you know, Vintage Spirits of a co oh, yeah. co Cocktails book 15 odd years ago, is now mainstream as fuck. But it takes the, the trade to push that first, right? Um, so it's good that Singapore bars are doing all that. And eventually the, the customers will catch up for sure. And you got loads of expats there, which will definitely help. You know? Oh, dude, the, I love, it reminded me so much of being back home and like a, such an open market, get everything from everyone. Everybody's got a kickback. Everybody like brings you free crap. It's just, um, it's, it was amazing, especially coming from Canada, which is like super over legalized on everything. Like going to Singapore was night and day, like five. Oh yeah. Five plus ones and four plus ones on orders. And oh, it was just awesome. But so, uh, order be open in 2010 in Sydney. Yeah. What year did you open? Or was order be in Melbourne next? Yes, yeah, so we did order be in Melbourne in 2011, and then we opened a bar called the Roosevelt in 2012. So, once we started opening bars, it kind of it went pretty quickly. Um, I had a a, a friend of mine, and you know, and we met him to work. We started with his work colleagues, uh, Greg Sanders, who worked for me at, uh, at at behind bars for for five years, I believe. Um, uh, first as a trainer, then as a reserve brands ambassador. One of the most hardworking, you know, people I know. Um, and we got to a point where I couldn't promote him within behind bars. There was no way for him to go. National international role, we didn't have anything available. And there was nothing else for him to learn. And so he um, he basically floated the idea of opening a bar. And I, I suggested we do one together and that, you know, um, Seeing that I had a business running, I could I could find the money, so you wouldn't have to go look for investors and stuff. And so we opened OTV Melbourne together um, October 2011, so about six, 18 months after we opened OTV Sydney. Um, and that was uh, very scary. Um, it didn't start out so well. Um, we, you know, OTV was hidden in Sydney, um, and in Melbourne, it was in a laneway off a laneway because it's Melbourne and we thought they were fucking used to hard to find venues. Yeah. Um, that was like the Melbourne fucking thing. And then, um, you know, but we had no sign. We just had this door. And for the first six months we had no business. It was, it was horrible. So scary. Um, but eventually, you know, it really started to, to pick up word of mouth got out there. Um, and uh, I think, you know, today is, you know, one of the, well, now it's closed fucking COVID, but um, you know, prior to COVID, it would have been one of the busiest cocktail bars um you know in australia uh if, if not the world in terms of like you know turnover per square meter and stuff it's it's crazy um um and that's really been like the anchor for the business as it as it's grown or to be melbourne 
See, that's the thing is like, I find, how do you, how did you keep positive? Because the, the hardest thing, when I, when I opened up Little Jumbo in 2013, ours was in sort of a, the back of a commercial building. So you had to go down a hallway of a commercial building, no signage, the same sort of thing, just an open sign lit up on the, on the door. Little yeah. logo on the front door, but it was 30, like 10 meters off the, the main thing. And, and you inspired me uh, a lot um, in my sort of mantra of like laneway bars. Like it's not a speakeasy per se, but it's a laneway bar. Like if you know where it is, you're going to find it. Yeah. And after like three to four months, like we can go into a whole different episode about business partners and whatnot. Um, like you have a quiet month and it's like, oh fuck, this concept's not working. How do you stay, stay on point with a concept that regardless if you've been successful in Sydney, how'd you stay super positive and super on brand and concept in Melbourne for six months, even though like you're like, Oh fuck, this may not work out. Well, I'm not going to say I was super positive. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, come on, let's do a rah, 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 do a rah, 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 store speech. <laughs> no, it's, it, it was hard. But I think the thing was for us, you know, a, you invested a lot of money in it. So if you're losing a little bit each week, it's still worth going with pot committed in a way. Right. Um, uh, which isn't the smart thing to be, but we were put committed to so that, that kind of, we felt we had no choice. And our business partner, Greg is, is a unique human being. And, um, uh, you know, his faith in the project and, and his, um, responses to my, you know, fear, uh, I think really is what, what kept us going. But also we knew from Sydney and having worked in bars a long time that the way we wanted to build our bar is was that we didn't, excuse me, we didn't want to launch for the bank. We wanted to grow it slowly. Um, and so we could see, you know, it might be 20,000 one week and then it might be 21 the next and then 18, 19. But as long as you, you know, we're only losing a little bit of money, not too much. We felt it was worth sticking with it. And at the time, it would be Sydney was going really well so that we could cover any losses that we had in Melbourne from Sydney whilst we built up that, that trajectory. Um, and, um, I think it's that understanding that we wanted to build it slowly, not launch with a bang was a big thing. Cause quite often for us, we don't want to be cool. Being cool is a, is a fucking nail in the coffin for a lot of good bars. Once you're cool, cause we opened for a specific type of person. We didn't open for cool people. We didn't open for people who um, were trendy or any of that shit. We opened for people who like a good drink. Mm-hmm. You know, we were after boosters. We were after people who like fucking cocktails, like whiskey, like spirits, like to have a conversation with her friends without fucking having to yell because the music was low and you could, it was carpeted everywhere and you could have a conversation in there. So we opened for people who of a mature age, like 30, 35, 40 and over was like our market. It takes a while to get those people into your venue. Um, and, but when you open and you try to be cool and you get all these fucking mid twenties and, you know, celebrities and Instagram models and shit and fucking bloggers back then. And you get this, you know, then you're very cool and you're in the paper, but you, but you're, you're famous for attracting good looking people. Right. And they're only coming for, they go to the opening of an envelope. So they're going to fucking go to the next thing three months later. Yeah. And then that whole thing that you made it on is gone. So our foundation wasn't going to be that foundation was going to be quality service and, and a great experience and great cocktails. And, um, and we knew that was going to take time. So we knew it was going to take a while before we, we got where we wanted to be. Um, so that kind of, it was part of the plan, I suppose, was, was one of the reasons we, we stuck with it. So even with all this work going on, you went and opened Roosevelt in 2012. Well, fucking Roosevelt was a whole thing. Other thing. Um, 
<laughs> I had really, the, three, like three bars in two years or three bars in like two and a half years. I was three bars in two years, almost on a day. It was fucked up. Um, it's intense. We, yeah, it was. Well, then we did two this year in fucking three months. Um, but, um, but uh, yeah, well, not the building of it all. But Russo was different. We had this idea for, for a bar. Um, and I was looking around for it to do with some friends. As a separate, we didn't have a speakeasy group. We didn't plan to have a bar group. We had two bars, you know, the one in Melbourne and the one in Sydney, and we were fine. And then I love cheese, and I fucking love cured meat. And we had this idea for this tiny little wine bar, and I couldn't find a space. And I walked into this one venue, which became the Roosevelt, and it it just felt like it was built for this idea I'd had. Uh, back in my mind and we played with this concept of cocktail degustations um, and we had this beautiful room facing the kitchen we could we built these massive tables 16 person tables bar heights so we sat on high chairs and we did a five course cocktail degustation there and then we did um, uh, the front bar was more like a uh, I suppose just bar and, and, and bar food area and we had a poker room at the back it's fucking beautiful um, and I, I suppose we just opened it because we, we found it. I uh, um, had friends who want to be part of it. And um, we felt we really knew the Sydney area. And we had a lot of, at the time, Woody was so fucking busy. We, we, we could barely, uh, um, we had lines down the hallway, out the door. So we thought we'd, we'd jump in on it. Um, not, just, not, not sure it was a smart move, but it, was, it certainly was a lot of fun. Um, and it, it surprised me. It's really weird that um, I, we didn't tell anyone we were opening. You know, uh, the media, of course, knew we were doing it. But on the first night, I was there with my wife and my business partner and his wife um, trying to have dinner and drinks and enjoy the opening. And now I was barbacking or or, be, or working the door the whole night. My my mate was working the kitchen the whole night. Um, and my wife ended up having to host while I was basically cleaning glasses and, and collecting plates. Um, I'm like, who the fuck are these people? How do you know? You know, like good friends of mine don't know we're opening. How the fuck do you know we're opening? <laughs> you know, um, but there's people out there who, who who pay attention to that shit. And I was, it was really interesting to, to see how many people actually are uh, hooked into this industry and, and are keen to see the you know what's going on. It was weird. So that was eight years ago. What was the what was the next venture after? How many bars and restaurants do you have now? Well, we got eight as part of the Speakeasy Group. The Roosevelt I no longer own 100. percent I got a small share in it. Um, uh, our venue manager, um, Ben Hickey, who, who um, ran it for several years, approached me um, and wanted to buy it off me uh, because he, he, uh, you know, he wanted to have his own venue and he had, had the finance to do so, but he really loved the Roosevelt and, and, would, and would like to stay there. Um, so if you don't count the Roosevelt, we currently have eight. Um, and I'm hoping that that will be the case post-COVID-19 as well. We don't know, though. So did you take a break after Roosevelt to open your next place? We took a little break. We opened, we opened, not long one, we opened Boilermaker House five years ago. I think, yeah, five years ago. So um, I think we had a, had a, a year, a bit, year and a bit break before we decided to start work on, on, uh, on Boilermaker. Um, and after we opened Boilermaker, we took quite a long break because we had the lookout laws come in Sydney. Um, and yeah. that, really, uh, that really knocked us out just to see how our industry could be knocked on its ass by the stroke of a pen overnight without any real data to back up the decision was, was brutal. And that really scared us off doing new things for, for, for a few years. Um, That's all been resolved now though, right? It's all back to relatively normal. 
Uh, yes and no. I mean, not really. The there's areas in Sydney still under lockout laws. Um, you know, the area that Ordovice is in and the Roosevelt. I mean, the Roosevelt area is still in lockout. That that zone, the King's Cross, and Ordovice is right on the outside of that. So, and we lost eighty five percent of foot traffic there. Yeah. Um, so when you go from like you know eighty thousand people coming a, 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 on a weekend to 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 six thousand coming on a weekend, impacts business. We had thirty bars and restaurants closed there in in a, in a space of two years in a one by one kilometer radius, more or less. Um, so it's uh, uh, that area is never going to bounce back. Um, and I think large parts of Sydney has changed. Yes, they've rolled them back to lockout laws, but um, it's not too little, too late. Yeah, and it's also not the same. You know the the uh, people's habits have changed. Um, uh, people's confidence in, in, in the system has changed. And um, uh, the announcements that the government come out with are really press releases. And then there's a lot of detail on the back that isn't seen by the consumers or guests or the industry at large. So it's not as simple as, yeah, oh, they're no longer in place. There's still plenty in place. So when did you open, I can never pronounce it properly, Mjolnir? Mjolnir. Mjolnir. Uh, now, this one is kind of, because you've always sort of, you've always lent into things that you're passionate about, but this is kind of taking that to a completely different level. Like you've lent into passionate pieces, knowing the, the, the macro of the culture at that time can sustain it because you've been passionate about it. Yeah. But your steakhouses are like your, your Munoz is a freaking a Scandinavian steakhouse. Is that correct? No, it's, it's even worse. It's uh, it's even worse. <laughs> It's even worse. It's a Viking-inspired restaurant and bar, and and um, we play in the Viking theme bit. So it's named Mjolnir after uh, Thor's hammer. Um, and I, I came across this space, and I had a you know a few years ago, and I had this idea for the space, but I just could not work it out financially. And the location was wrong. The location is terrible. Um, it's a horrible location. And I said to myself, we're not opening any venues in the suburbs anymore. We're just going to be in the CBD. The lockout laws have scared me. I need to be in the yeah. CBD. And then, fuck it, we found this space and it's ran down horrible, damn basement, but beautiful, like had potential. And we came up, I came up with this idea that, you know, I, I, so my kids are called Odin and Loki. Yes. So I'm, I'm committed on the Viking thing. And um, um, we're watching Marvel a lot. And, and I came up with this idea that, you know, if, if Marvel exists, if, 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 the, if the Avengers exist and Thor is real and Hulk is exist and fucking Black Widow and the, and the crew and Thor is here on Midgard fighting fucking baddies, right? <laughs> he can't go home. So he gets homesick. And what would be the natural thing for him to do? I don't know how much we scared drunk at this point, but, you know, this is the thinking behind it. And so the thinking was, what would he do? Well, he'd open, he'd open a, a feasting hall, right? where he could relive the merriment of Valhalla with his, with his friends and colleagues on earth. And so there became the, and he would name it, of course, Mjolnir after his hammer that gives him the, his power. And so in, in mythology, it doesn't give him his power. In mythology, it's a great weapon. In, in mythology, he's got a belt called Meningur that, that doubles his strength. But anyway, um, uh, and I floated this idea with Greg and my wife, and I thought it was a stupid, crazy idea. But they, they really liked it. So we, we took a punt on it. It was very strange. So um, you go there, we have a Viking ship, like a small kind of mini Viking ship hanging off the wall as you walk in. So you get met with a dragon head kind of fucking looking up at you. Um, all tables have like runes carved into them. 
Um, you get a, a shot of meat on arrival. Quite often, you'll toast the old Norse gods as you sit down. Um, we have a very limited menu, um, and it's all inspired around. So because the origin story of the venue is it's a fictional fucking fictitious universe, like this is like Thor exists. We're not going to recreate old Viking food. That would suck ass. You'd eat potatoes and fucking fish only, you know, more or less, and loads of um, very bland vegetables. So fuck that. We, well, if Vikings were around today, what would they eat? And I'm like, would they eat bone marrow? Fuck yeah, they would have bone marrow. You know? Would they have big fucking, you know, bones of like fucking short rib and meat? Fuck yeah, they would have that. Um, whole fish, fuck yeah. So we just kind of went with, what would Vikings have today? And that's the inspiration for the, for, the, for the food menu. It's the inspiration for the cocktail list. And it's the inspiration for everything we do in there. Um, and when you sit down for dinner, we fucked up the sequence of service, you know? So you have the whole, you get greeted, but you have a shot and a fucking Viking toast. Um, we present you the menu, but then we bring out this leather roll um, with knives. And all the knives are specifically made for us. We make it a made in, 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 in Russia, um, Pakistan, Finland, Norway, Canada, the States. Um, and all these guys are making Viking-inspired knives for us, where they, you know, wooden handles, bone handles. They carve Viking motifs into them. They cost me about 200 bucks a fucking pop to buy their hunting knives. Um, and then each person chooses their weapon for dinner. So you get to choose to fucking, you know? Uh, it's cool. And then, you know, there's a bunch of other stuff that happens. And, and um, we made the experience also so that, you know, we sell mostly cocktails. So there's not a lot of wine and beer. For, I mean, all the beer comes in horns. So the favorite of beer goes in because you fucking, you know, like this shit. You know, who doesn't want to drink beer out of a horn? <laughs> I got my water in here, so it's okay. <laughs> um, and, um, and then a lot of cocktails we put on fire and shit. So it's a, it's a really theatrical kind of environment. And um, it worked way better than we thought it would. Uh, way better. Um, and so we opened another one in Maryland pretty much like almost on the day, 12 months later. You have one in Sydney, one in Melbourne now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, just, just to take a step back on this, this concept, because it is mentally, it is insane. If someone had come to you when you were doing behind bars and said, Sven, I got an idea for a bar and a restaurant that I think we should make, would you have said they were crazy? You probably, yeah. <laughs> but, but the thing is, though, the thing is, though, as a consultant, I kept getting really frustrated when I talked to bar owners about, their product, and they kept telling me they were selling food and beer. And I tried to convince them that they were selling an experience and he gave a fuck about their food and beer because I could get their product across the road for a quarter of the price at the bottle shop. So you're not gonna stay in business if that's what you think you're doing. And so as we started building our venues, we always focused on experience, experience, experience. And I think, you know, what we considered experience today or 10 years ago is not gonna be enough in 10 years to, to, you know, we need to keep improving that element. Um, uh, but, you know, by going back to that, that really kind of is how Mjolnir came about. We got loads of advice to not do it. One of my, one of the guys I respect the most here as a, as a food critic and restaurant critic emailed me and told me it was a bad idea. He said, you know, I can show you all kinds of data on how opening a venue 
where nobody can fucking pronounce the name <laughs> is a bad idea. He goes, because nobody's going to feel confident recommending going there with their friends. So that cuts down on visits. Then not being able to spell it also sucks for you. So come up with a different name and I'm, it might work. And, um, uh, but I sometimes do, uh, I do sometimes this uh, keynote talk for business owners on how we created a great business by ignoring great business advice. So uh, for us, that's kind of just par for course. We thought, you know, th the less sense this makes, uh, the more impact it might actually end up having. And it so did. What sort of, like, to, to get away from all the, the fun and jovialness, how is, because uh, I know how it's hit us in Canada and I've been chatting to so many people and it's, uh, it's devastated our industry here. How has it devastated you guys as badly as the rest of the world in Australia? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, we close, I mean, we've been closed now for five weeks, I think, you know, so you have no income um, at all. We haven't done any pivots. Um, and um, so we have zero income, but we have still have lots of expenses. We still have to cover a portion of our rent. We are still paying staff um, annual leave uh, that's been worked up while we were trading that we owe them, obviously. Um, we have staff that are still working uh, that we are paying for. Um, and we have uh, you know, a lot of, you know, outgoing obligations that we still got to have. So for every business, it's, it's, it's devastating. Um, some businesses were more, I think, well positioned to pivot and take advantage of the new environment. I think some people actually seen an increase in trade as a result of it. Um, but those pivots weren't, we didn't feel they were right for us. Um, and so we simply closed all venues um, and are now working on, you know, basically our internal systems and procedures and getting ready for reopening and see how we can, be a better business when we are allowed to reopen. Um, Do you think there's an experience-based business? Like we just, like you just really went heavily into your business being an experience over a sales job. Do you think that, because for me, in my opinion, I think people are going to be going out for experiences more so after this, like yeah. less money uh, in the system, the staffing is going to be really difficult because a lot of restaurants are shutting. So the staff that you do rehire are going to be on point and Epic. Um, but people, I think people are going to lean into having an experience over just going out to eat and drink. It's not going to, it's going to be like 10, 15 years ago where it's an ex, a, a night, a once a week special occasion. Let's go out for the best experience instead of it being more so let's go out every single night of the week and have fun. Well, yeah. So when we, and we've done a lot of recession planning. So Greg and I thought that the recession was going to hit us this year anyway. We didn't think it was going to be fucking this thing happening, but we, you know, looking at how the economy has been traveling, uh, looking at the inflated value of the of the stock market, uh, the you know tech companies being you know thousand times fucking EBITDA in terms of valuation was you know most businesses would be lucky to get twelve, um, you know that kind of thing. Uh, you know we've kind of looked it's going to be a recession coming, and and we've positioned our business as a special occasion business. Like that's literally what you said is our position. Mm -hmm. So we believe that people still come out for those special occasions when. Um, restrictions are lifted. However, the big problem I think is going to be is that we're most likely, I mean, I mean, the States might be different because of fucking Looney Tunes got in charge there, but, um, <laughs> but the rest of the world, you know, we're going to have, we're going to have restrictions on how many people you can have in your venue. And the thing with venues is that the experience isn't solely provided by us. The experience is also provided by friends and other guests in the venue. And if you can't interact with other people in a the venue, then that knocks bars on their ass. Um, restaurants still have a way to ha have a, a reason to live here, um, but bars are going to 
not so much if you've got to keep social distancing between tables. Um, so I think that's going to be interesting. Also, whether or not you have 50 people in your restaurant or 100 people in your restaurant, you may still require the same t- team in the kitchen mm-hmm. um, or 80% of the team in the kitchen for 50% of the turnover. Um, and without being able to fill your venue up, shoulder to shoulder or create that intimacy that, that we, we like intimate venues, you know, um, we like for people to meet each other uh, and start talking to the table next to them. Uh, we like them to, you know, quite often, you know, what happened is say at Milner, somebody sits there with a bottle of wine. Cause that's what they do when they go to dinner. Um, this happened to me when I was there, this, I was there with two friends, three friends, and we had a, a couple or uh, father and son next to us with a, with a glass of wine for dinner. Meanwhile, at our table, shit was being put on fire we were doing whiskey <laughs> off the bone marrow and the dad goes to me goes what the fuck is going on with this table what, what kind of dinner is this i'm like it's a fucking viking feast bro get with the program and and so then they were like well fuck we'll, we'll put this wine aside for later and then they started having cocktails as well so you know that interaction if we can't sit next to each other then that's going to be very very dangerous hospitality i think we are we have to consider the fact that we are a business that rely on social intimacy, not social distancing. And I think that that might fuck our business model up big time. Um, so I'm really rooting for a, for a cure, for a cure and a vaccine. And I think c- closing down was a fucking walk in the park compared to reopen. It's going to be, is my prediction. I'm not looking forward to reopening at all. Uh, I am. For you, I think it's harder. For you, you're super dynamic and obviously you and Greg super strategic with everything. Do you feel like this could be a bit of a reset for the hospitality industry in a, in a way that it's going to clean away the, the shaft from the corn and, and that sort of thing? Um, it, I'm, there's going to be sure pros coming out of it. I'm not sure it's going to clean away the shaft from the corner or, or, or whatever. I, I hear a lot of people say the great operators will, 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 will survive. I don't know. I think, unfortunately, a lot of growth companies are you know, a lot of great companies that we, people that we look to, I think are great operators, are people that grow their business. Um, and people who grow their business quite often have debt. And if you have debt right now, um, before you closed, you're opening up with a lot more debt. Uh, debt to your landlord, debt to your bank, most likely debt to your team in terms of accrued annual leave, etc. Um, so I think we'll see a lot of really great venues close simply because um, nobody could, could foresee that. Mm-hmm. We were going to close down for this long. And, and a lot of the measures that have been put in place aren't overly helpful. Um, I think we'll see a massive reset in that, uh, at least in Australia, and I think it's the same worldwide, um, with the death of retail, uh, we've had this boom in hospitality where every new fucking high-rise uh, is putting cafes and bars and restaurants into the bottom because previously the, the clothing stores and the sneaker shops and all that shit you know, the Mac repair things, whatever, those fucking things are gone because we're going online and buying our stuff now. So retail's going down and it's been uh, replaced by this huge oversupply of hospitality venues. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of these, a lot of venues will, will, will not reopen. Um, so definitely be a big reset in that way, but I'm not sure it's gonna, it's gonna be all oh, the good ones survive. Depends what you mean by good ones. Um, you know, I think healthy businesses will survive. Um, and quite often when people talk about, you know, what a great bar makes a great bar, a great restaurant, you look at the rankings around the world, um, and God knows whatever these awards are, as well as the restaurant critics, 
right? A lot of these venues aren't fucking businesses, man. They are, they are showcases. Mm -hmm. uh, um, they are a physical manifestation of someone's ego, um, but they don't make money, um, you know? Uh, and I think that a lot of venues, if you weren't a profitable business and if you, if you weren't uh, um, uh, had good kind of financial management, you're not going to come out of this. Uh, and that would probably mean a lot of our favorite restaurants and bars are going to get included in that carnage. So that being said, like you've got one hand your businesses and I know that we're short for time now, but like you've got your businesses and your own stresses and all this sort of stuff. Why, what, what pushed you? And I, I can obviously tell you the reason why, but like, what really pushed you to do Ananias as a free resource during COVID-19? Um, because like there's, there's a balance, like you're already short cash flow, and now you're going to yeah. give away one of your biggest assets for free. It, it, I, I yeah. can understand like from a hospitality point of view, from a, bit of, a business point of view, like, but why? Yeah. So I think, you know, um, what's, I have a, I have a, you know, the saying fucking, um, What's it go? You know, what's the thing? Uh, everything's everything goes in war and business or something like that, right? <laughs> um, and uh, people saw, you know, it's just business. You know, I've always had this uh, approach that just because it's business doesn't give you permission permission to be a dick. Um, and I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. And for us, you know, I'm on one hand, I'm negotiating rent free periods with my landlords. I'm reaching out to my point of sale system to fucking halt my subscription service um, payments because I'm not using it. I can't in good conscience charge people for use my plat to use my platform when there's no income. I can't, I can't do it like this. You've got to have a moral compass in this world. Um, and I think, you, you know, as long as I've been in business, I've, I've tried to, to, to always balance ethics with uh, financials and, and, and make sure that we do the right thing. Um, and so for us, it was a pretty, you know, easy thing to do and also a selfish thing to do by doing it. I'm getting a lot of, positives back i'm getting people emailing me texting me i got people you know sending us messages thanking us for doing it we're helping venues with their internal training programs and assisting them with getting ready for reopening and so that positive reinforcement at a time like this um to be honest is it's part of what you know fuels my mental health um so it's not like it's a it's a it's a one-way street you know we get a lot back from it as well um to be honest and and that's been you know when we've had some pretty shitty days uh, having someone you know message us and thank us for being able to learn all the stuff or venues it, it really is sometimes what helps me get through the day that's good to hear man well i really thank you for your time man that was awesome to catch up like it was fantastic and just learning about the the great thing with the podcast is that um, I have good friends, long standing friends like yourself and a few others that I've sat down with. And then they throw this massive curveball, like, Oh, by the way, I was in the Norwegian military for two and a half years. And you're like, Oh fuck. How did I not know that? Like I, I was having a conversation with a friend the other day and I, I mentioned something about where I grew up in Australia and she's like, you've never ever talked about your upbringing. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. No one needs to know that I didn't wear shoes till I was 18 years old. And I was living up in the sticks behind Brisbane for freaking most of my life. Like it's just, a, it's just a different part of the story, but I really appreciate your time, man. I thank you so much. Well, thanks man. I really appreciate uh, being on. I mean, it's good to give the catch up, but I think, you know, doing these things, uh, like catching up on the phone, video calls during this time is, it is important, you know, to see people and, um, having a conversation with others outside of 
you know, you know, the people that you are locked in with 24 yeah. seven, um, it's again, a big part of, of, of staying focused and, um, you know, trying to get through this with, you know, mental health somewhat intact, you know, somewhat intact. Somewhat, well, it's hard. I think everyone's, everyone's gonna, everyone's got it, got it tough. I think not everybody, but a lot of people got it tough during this time. So it's, you know, it's good to we do all have families to hang out with. Exactly. Yeah. Hey man, well enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you again. I'll chat to you real soon, man. Thanks for having me, bro. See you, buddy. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening, Pose Shifters. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. I really enjoy sitting down with friends and peers and uh, just chatting about the industry and getting down to the nuts and bolts of what's really going on out there. Uh, make sure you like, subscribe, comment, everything on all the platforms. Just hit it up and I'll do my best to answer any queries or questions you have. I'll see you next week, guys. Bye.